0: Hello and welcome to the podcast, How Did You End Up Here? I'm Jamie Hare and I'm talking to people who are in interesting jobs and finding out what path they took to get there. This week I'm talking to journalist and senior lecturer at the University of the West of Scotland, Elizabeth McLaughlin. Elizabeth McLaughlin, thank you for joining me on...
1: It's a pleasure, Jamie here.
0: How did you end up here? Can we, start off, by, we can start off by giving me your current job title?
1: Okay, I am Elizabeth McLaughlin. I'm a senior lecturer in the School of Media Culture and Society. Um, my subject areas journalism and sports journalism and I'm the programme leader currently for the MA broadcast journalism.
0: Excellent. And um so let's try and track back and work out how you ended up here. You started out it's when you started out at school, did you have sort of ambitions to be in journalism and that yes. sort of thing?
1: Cra- crazy though it may seem, since I was eight year old. Yeah. So I had a primary school teacher, Mrs. Vizini, and I remember sitting one day in class with her and she said, What do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I wanted to write. And she said, What for newspapers? And I'm sure she could have said books or whatever, magazines, but she said newspapers and that was it. And I said, yep, I want you to write for newspapers. And I went way home and said to mum and dad, I'm going to be a journalist when I'm a grown-up. And that was it. So since I was eight-year-old,
0: and were you writing stuff at that time? What were you? Uh, yeah,
1: I wasn't writing. Uh, bizarrely enough, I wasn't writing hard news. I was writing f- fiction. So I used to do. I actually used to write a lot of poetry. Right. I don't, I don't really write it so much now. You really need to be miserable for writing poetry. Right. My goodness, I should be writing volumes of this stuff just now. <laughs> anyway. But uh, so I wrote a lot of poetry um, when I was sort of early teens, and before that, I got halfway through a novel which my mother says could have been J.K. Rowling. I could have been J.K. Rowling before her. Uh, J.K. Rowling made big with Harry Potter, but I think my mother was just being very kind uh, because it wasn't that good. But I did write uh, three volumes of it. Um, That volume sounds. Very pretentious, but it wasn't. It was like three big jotters at school, and I was in about uh, primary seven, first and second year. And it was this um, sort of island where strange things went on. Right. I don't know where that is now. My mother might have it somewhere in a loft somewhere. Anyway, so I did write. I did a lot of writing, and I I read. I read a lot. I'm a ferocious reader. Right. Um, so I suppose I was always going to do something. I think with words and writing and things like that.
0: I and mean, when you're reading, are you reading, like, the news or are you reading, like...
1: A combination a, a of both. News-related I, I, books yeah, and that sort I, of like? I, I, Well, no, not so much. Again, a lot of it was still sort of fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I read the newspapers. I watched the news. Um, quite a political family. Um, my dad was, uh, was a member of the Labour Party. Um, big trade unionists so there was always a lot of politics going on talked in the house so reading newspapers was just the thing that you did and if you think back to then and people listening to this who are a lot younger than me will think no internet how did you survive but that's how you got information, so radio, television and the newspapers. Saturday mm-hmm. night, the paper getting delivered. Mm-hmm. Um, so you find out the results. The pink final? The pink final, yeah. I've got the
0: last ever copy of that, actually. Do you really? Yeah, I do.
1: Um, uh, we used to have a paper boy who I went to school with, uh, Alan MacDonald, mm-hmm. name check for him, and big Celtic fan, and Celtic, if Celtic get beat, we didn't get a paper. <laughs> right, 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 right. So you always knew. Went on strike. Yeah, so you always knew um, that you know, Celtic hadn't won if Alan didn't turn up with my dad's paper on the Saturday night. Right. Um, but so it did a lot of that. But reading, it was uh, my 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 Nana, my mum's mum, got me into reading uh, things like Agatha Christie and Naomi Marsh and uh, all all these sort of you know different writers like that. But mm-hmm. it was quite into crime, um, crime fiction, and trying to figure it out. Yeah. So I read to try and. Be better than them, I suppose. And was that
0: a sort of insight into your investigative mind you know, and how you might end up checking I, out stories and that sort of thing?
1: Po- yeah, possibly. Um, yeah, I think it probably was this idea of getting to the bottom of something. Um, you know, once I get an idea in my head or I hear something, I need to find out exactly where it all came from and mm-hmm. things. So it was definitely that in it, and I think also having quite um a, a sort of left leaning. Um, family where everybody was equal Mm no one was any different everyone deserved a good a a proper chance at life and so forth was something that was really important to me as a journalist so I always wanted to to be a journalist who fought for the people who couldn't fight for themselves the voice of the people who didn't have a voice Um, and all these years later I still maintain that's the only Mm -hmm. reason for doing journalism in my opinion Right. Um, so yeah so I suppose it was always there from a a very early age. And then I started being the editor of a newspaper magazine, Real Action for Today, Raft. Okay. Um, which was for the two schools. There was I uh, went to Notre Dame and there was a boys' school, St. Patrick's. Mm-hmm. So we had, a, again, it was a political, so we did a lot in Amnesty International, we did a lot in <coughs> CND, and I was the editor of that. Okay. And then started doing a wee bit of writing for um, the... Catholic flourish and a wee bit for the Lennox Herald, mm-hmm. and so forth. So yeah, so I was, I started writing and getting paid for writing before I would actually left school.
0: Uh huh. So. And and when you went so after school, did you did you study it formally or did no, you? No, I
1: didn't. I got I got I did get offered a place at Napier, mm-hmm. um, which was the only place to go. Um, but I actually started in my local paper. My very first job was at the Jewish Echo. I am ecumenical yeah, in so many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I worked in the Jewish Echo um, does, that, does that Street. sort of
0: thing matter? Like, I mean, the fact, you know. No,
1: it it's... didn't, because what I did, I was writing advertorials and I was right. writing movie reviews and things. And uh, right. bizarrely enough, I think outwith of the editor, Ezra Golombok, that mm-hmm. was his name. Cool name. Outwith, uh, it was a cool name. Cool guy, actually. But outwith of the editor, the majority, it, it, it was an ecumenical. There was like, you know, a couple of, I think Jehovah Witnesses, a couple of Mormons, right. you know, me being Catholic. oh uh, yeah, there was a whole mix. So no you didn't. I mean, but that was my first um my first foray into newspapers and then after about nine months there or something, I had an interview for a job at the Dumbarton Reporter, which was the local paper where my mum and dad lived. And uh, I got it. And awesome. that was that. Mm-hmm.
0: And did you start to, did you study anything then or Um
1: what what happened after that was the newspaper there'll be journalism students all over the world crying when I say the next part. But newspapers at that point would pay for their trainees to go through to Napier. Mm-hmm. Um, So I get paid to go and study and I know there'll be journalism students aghast at that now Um, or maybe we should return to those days, who knows. Um, But I get paid for doing it. So I went through to Edinburgh, um, I think January to March and then from October to December in the one year and did all my law modules, my politics modules, um, shorthand, obviously, to get to 100 words a minute. Um, And then when she did that... Um, you were still a trainee, and then you did your NCTG exam, your proficiency exam, and once you passed that, um, you were deemed a sort of senior reporter. Because it taken roughly about three years, so it was like it was like an apprenticeship, mm-hmm. um, and you you'd worked your three years, and you'd worked up from doing basic picture captions and WRI reports and things like that to covering council meetings and court and. Every other type of
0: thing. Mm-hmm. And when you went, when you go into that environment, I was listening. I was listening to a podcast yesterday with a journalist, and he said it was quite a male, and it's still quite a male-dominated environment when you went into that. And I, I don't know what kind of year we're talking. Late eighties or something. Yeah, like
1: that? late eighties, nineteen. Uh, oh well, eighty. I think eighty-six okay. is when I started at the reporter.
0: Yeah, eighty-six. And was that an, is that? Uh, was that an issue that registered your?
1: Well, One of the most
0: determined people I and I can't <laughs> imagine you being intimidated by anything really, but but, um, but was that a factor or
1: No, is it now that you're saying it, there were um there were three female reporters and the reporter. Right. There was myself, there was Liz Gallagher, um, and there was the chief reporter, Tina Kemp. Right. Um, and the editor was Donald Fullerton, so I suppose it was a male editor. Um And if Donald ever hears this, he'll probably laugh at me saying it. But Tina was kind of more like the boss than anybody else because she bossed everybody about and Tina will love me for saying that. But she was the boss and um, that was her kind of nickname as well. Um, There's no doubt about it, it is a very male-dominated profession or it was certainly at that point. Um, But it never resonated with me and possibly because I had two other females in the office mm-hmm. in my very first sort of full-time reporter job that that didn't register at all and then over the years um, I've worked with a lot of you know guys in the job but a lot of women as well and I'm sure there are plenty of women out there who have been treated really badly um, or have been belittled in some way because they're female I can't say that I ever experienced that that's not to say people didn't think it or walk out the room and Mm. say it, but they never said it to my face. So, more the public actually, public Mm -hmm. were more. So when I became an editor and you know, they'd say, I'd like to speak to the boss. Mm -hmm. And I say, you're speaking to her? No, 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 I want to speak to the guy in charge. (laughs) And I'm like, "Ah, there isn't a guy in charge, it's me. And it would be like, hen, you're just out of school. (laughs) Like you giving you, you know, being in charge of your paper and things like that. So sometimes the public, bizarrely enough, were more so, mm-hmm. but maybe because they had it, this
0: stereotypical view of how newspapers should be. And
1: yeah, I uh, you had a cigarette hanging out at on one side of your mouth, and you'd have you know a, a whiskey and a glass the other side. Now, I'm not saying that that didn't happen, mm. uh, I never smoked and I don't like whiskey, but. And I, I actually could probably name you some women who yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually fit into that as well. But yeah, there was always this thing about, you know, you they were kind of foul-mouthed mm-hmm. and they were bad-tempered and they were hard-bitten and they smoked, chain-smoked and they drank a lot. And I'm not saying none of that happened because it did happen, but it, you know, it wasn't the only type of journalist mm-hmm. um, that you came across.
0: And do you think is there any sort of early stories that you covered or anything that stands out from your early days and you mm, early stories? Sort of, that, that sort of almost justified to yourself, this is the reason I got into this or anything that's put yeah, put you no, off almost? Or? No,
1: nothing there was no job that I did <coughs> that put me off it. Mm-hmm. Um I mean there's death knocks. Yeah. Um which is obviously you have to go out to a house um and someone in that family has died suddenly, either in an accident or, Mm -hmm. you know, a murder. Anyway, something awful has happened and your job is to knock the door and ask questions and... Oh, sorry, knock the door and hope they let you in. Mm -hmm. Once you're in the door, it's reasonably fine. You have to get in the door. I never had a door shut in my face. Right. So I always get in. So possibly had a door been shut in my face, I might have felt slightly differently about it. Mm -hmm. Never bothered me. It was just... Part of the job, um, so there've been stories that have um, stuck with me. Quite sad stories that I've gone out and covered, and mm. I remember one in particular coming out and sitting in the car and having a bit of a cry to myself. Yeah, yeah, um, and then giving myself a bit of a shake and saying, right, okay, that's it, move on. Yeah, um, and. There are other stories where, you know, you had an elderly woman whose house is riddled with dampness mm-hmm. and you went to the council and you got a rehoused so you got it all sorted mm-hmm. and that's the bit about the voice for people that don't have a voice. Yeah. You know, that old dear would never you know, been living in a really cold house and if I hadn't, you know, been bullish about it and went on and asked these questions, that may not have happened. I remember once at Christmas I was the editor of a paper at Christmas time and the woman we had three children, all in the all under the age of sixteen, and someone had stolen her purse, and it all her Christmas money in it. And it was like the twenty second, twenty third of December, right on Christmas, and she'd gone to get a loan, an mm. emergency loan, from the DSS at the time, and they had said that she didn't qualify. And we really pushed it, and I remember saying to the reporters, the paper was pretty much done and dusted, and. But I was determined I wasn't going home until I sorted this out. And all the reporters, all my reporters, refused to go home until we sorted it. And we contacted a lot of charities and Salvation Army brought things round and different churches brought things round. Um, And we got a taxi firm to take the women and our children home and they all had food for Christmas and all the rest of it and had toys and all the rest of it. And we worked really hard. And we got the story, but to be honest, the story was the second to yeah. you know, the most important thing was we had n- and yeah. I remember some someone at the time saying that um, you know, she'd shouldn't have put all her money in one purse and all this ter- mm. terrible thing. And it was like trying to blame her in some capacity for it. And I remember saying, even if she has some blame in it, these three children don't. No. And they deserve somebody to take care of them. Mm-hmm. So that was the type of story that would um, you know get my my, my 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 sort of my dander up now, but yeah. I But no, this is not right. We need to do something about this. And how
0: do you find do, do people come to you and ask for help, or do you in, like in that instance you just
1: well in that instance it was <laughs> a
0: story that there had been a crime anyway. Or?
1: Well, no, what happened with that one was actually the woman had not came to her office. Her office was across the road from the DSS, right. so the woman had gone over to them, and they had said they couldn't help her. And I think someone was, I remember someone, I think, saying they were on holiday. Uh, oh, sorry, it was, do you know what time of year it is? It's Christmas and the person that runs that is now an annual leave. Mm. It was something ludicrous or whatever yeah. like that. Anyway, the woman came out and she saw the Irvin Times, which were directly across the road. She saw the Irvin office and she just came across to tell us. And it was like, right, OK, this is it. We well, mm. need to get this sorted. Yeah, yeah. Did cause a bit of grief. We had folk in from the DSS, of all,
0: week. Did you really? Giving me a bit of a
1: hard time about right? it. Right?
0: Mm-hmm. Why? Because you'd given them Why? a bad Well no, yeah, because I think,
1: I think we'd quoted, one of the quotes in the story had been, yes I think it's something along the lines of who, uh, someone had said something like who puts all their money in the one purse or mm. if that's all the money you've got or something like that and we quoted them Mm-hmm. Or words to that effect. But anyway, we, we basically, the way I'd need to go back and look at the story, but the story, they weren't were not happy with the way the story had been written. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to them, so point out the inaccuracies in this story. What's wrong? What did we get wrong? And factually, we had got nothing wrong, but they didn't like the tone. Um, and they don't pay my wages. Mm. And therefore, the tone
0: didn't matter. Didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so from Irvine, the Irvine Times, you moved?
1: Irvine Times, I was there for about 18 months and then I moved to Glasgow, to mm-hmm. the Glasgow Guardian and it was the best.
0: Was that a relation of the Guardian? No, 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 no. no, no. no.
1: It was actually part of um different newspaper organisation. It was part of the Irvine Times organisation. It was their only paper that was not in Ayrshire right. um, at that point and um, I'd gone to work. In the Guardian, you know, the Glasgow Guardian office, which is a free paper in the West End, and it was the best job ever. Right. I loved it. You're in the West End working. You know, our politicians were people like Sam Gilbraith, Maria Fife, George Galloway, and so forth. Um, you know, really Donald Dewar. Um, really big, serious mm-hmm. political heavyweights. Um, you had the thing it is always interesting, the thing about Glasgow. And particularly the West End is there was always an organisation set up for every campaign going, and there was always a voice in Glasgow that wanted to say something. Yeah. Um. So there was always something happening. So was, um, it, was it? Is that
0: in that respect? Is it easier than say when you're somewhere that's smaller like Irvine um, or Ayrshire? It's maybe less uh, happening.
1: Well, it it was easier for the sort of um it was easier sometimes to get someone to go on the record. Um, the type of story wasn't much different and getting stories wasn't any easier in that respect. I mean, you know, how do you get good stories? You listen, you keep your eyes open, you are curious. Um, when somebody tells you something, your first thought is, why did that happen? or mm-hmm. That's ridiculous, that shouldn't happen. And the journalist in you then turned around and said, oh, I'm doing something about that. Um, so that doesn't matter. Where it can be difficult is where people are maybe a wee bit resistant about coming forward and saying something on the record, and you've got to make you know I don't know twelve phone calls rather than two. Mm-hmm. Um, but I quite like that as well. It's almost like you know it's like see when you eventually get somebody to go in the record and tell you what you need to know. It's like kind of I don't know when in the scoring the winning goal
0: yeah, do you know what I mean after a your endeavour uh, because it's not you appreciate it because it's not been easy
1: Ah, uh, uh, th- those are the stories that are, are worthwhile the ones that you you pour blood sweat and tears and there are other stories that kind of write themselves almost mm-hmm. Um and people want to talk about it but there are other stories I'm always interested in stories that people don't want to talk about because mm-hmm. they're the stories that we should be running as opposed to the stories that you know when people say when politicians send you a press release on something you know it's like all oh, right. Yeah. But good. what else are they not? But what they not? With? You know what are other the what are the other stories that mm-hmm. we really should be delving into in and, that respect?
0: And those politicians you mentioned, you know George Galloway, Donald Dewar, what you've got close contact with them, and particularly um,
1: particularly particular, Donald Dewar was a very 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 serious um, politician, very you know very smart man, all the rest of it. George Galloway is as well. George Galloway is probably one of the best constituency MPs I've ever came across the people in the West End loved George because George got things done. Um, and at the end of the day, that's why you vote someone in. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, he is probably still one of the best orators. I mean, I remember we had a Hustings and George was, wherever he'd been, but he was kind of a wee bit later getting to the Hustings. I mean, he was on time, but it was close to the wire for the Hustings to happen. And he came in the door and he didn't look flustered at all, but he, you could tell he'd just arrived, and you know he was like. And he, he said to me, "Right, okay, I need to get organised for this." And he just turned it on, yeah. right. born to do it, mm-hmm. born auditor. I mean, I think whether you would like George's politics or not, when George Galloway talks, you listen because he's a compelling voice. I remember mm-hmm. one saying to me that I had the the voice the the voice the voice for television, but the face for radio. <laughs> right. Yeah. We had a good relationship, George yeah, and I. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a lot of time um, for him from the point of view of as a journalist, mm-hmm. looking for information and things. Um, he was very, very good at that. Always came back. Yeah. So if you contacted him you needed something, George always, George or one of the people that worked for him always came back to you. Mm. Um, so, But I mean, it was the early 90s in the West End, so we'd had the City of Culture, you know, there was a whole, whole sort of Changes going on in Glasgow, yeah. so it was a good time to be working
0: there. And what from there? What what happened after the Glasgow? After Gardens?
1: that, I ended up coming back to Ayrshire. Mm-hmm. These things all go full circle,
0: I suppose. You're not from Ayrshire, we should actually say that. We're we're, we're recording this at the Ayr campus of UWS, uh-huh. but but you're not. You're, you're We're both from Glasgow.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm from East End of Glasgow. Mm-hmm. So I'm from uh, Parkhead. Um, and my mum, so I think I was, I was born in Parkhead, lived in Govan for a while, Jimmy. Right. Um, moved to Drumchapel, mm-hmm. um, and then moved to Dumbarton. Okay. And then when I left the reporter, uh, I got, I moved to Ayrshire. Right. Uh, and sort of trebled my salary overnight. Right, Because the, the Ayrshire papers were better paid. And it, um, so, because
0: obviously, there's always been a feature of coming to here, so like, mm-hmm. how did that come on the first? Just happen to be it just happened to be where it was a so job, happened, or? it
1: just totally, um, it, it totally geography was never my strong point. I can't right. believe I'm going to say this on air, but geography was never my strong point. And I remember saying to my dad once, not long after I'd been in Irvine, um, and I said, you know, these people in the east coast are kind of strange. And my dad said to me, who do you know on the east coast? <laughs> and I said, where's Irvine? And he's like, oh, for goodness <laughs> sakes, you know, yeah. so, um. But the, but I suppose what that told me is yeah. from someone who came from the west of Scotland, Ayrshire yeah. didn't seem yeah, yeah. like the west of Scotland right. I knew. Yeah, yeah. Um, so ended up near Ayrshire, mm-hmm. and that was it. Yeah, it, yeah. It's you know, um, it was just one of those things. It, mm. If the the job had been down south, yeah, um, and caught my, eye, I'm sure I'd have just moved down south. But it was the thing I did.
0: And how did those moves come about? Was it because you thought. Okay, I've been here for eighteen yeah, months. Uh, now, now's the time to move. or Do people uh, come to you, and how, mm, how, and is that a feature of like journalism? You, do you move you, for quite a bit?
1: I would, I would say now journalists move all the time. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think it's different. It's very unusual to have a situation where you have someone who's in the same newspaper, mm. um, same role for more than. Uh, three or four years now. Yeah. Um, and why, I, why,
0: isn't that is there a reason for that?
1: Uh, I, I do th- I think partly because sadly I think particularly local newspapers, um, the salaries aren't that high in mm-hmm. some respects. Um although I mean you know, Scotland used to have in in um, economic terms, working for a newspaper in Scotland, you earn more money than down south. Mm-hmm. Um but I think People um, move on more. I think there's different opportunities now. You know, the internet and online and so forth has given people the opportunity to go into different things, publish their own material, create their own website, you know, yeah. do their own, do, do their own stuff. Um, but it it was something that was almost like, uh, and there was a the promotion prospect. So um, you know, you moved from being a trainee to a senior reporter, to potentially a news editor, or a chief reporter and and so forth. Um, and you get less of that now. And I think um, it's, I would say for a few years, in particularly with journalism, they had a bad press, excuse the pun. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's maybe slightly changed now. And I think people understand, the public understand why it's important to have a good reliable, accurate, truthful, and honest press mm-hmm. that that will stand up for the people who don't have a voice. Um, but I think for a wee while there's been a, a sense that being a journalist was something quite you know yeah sort of scra- I don't know, scraping the bottom of a budgie's cage or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, whereas now um, there's but in terms of going back to your original question, yeah. why did I move? You know, you just get to a point that you probably covered that you know the area quite well. Yeah. Um, you've probably covered almost every story that you think you're going to come across there. And if there are no promotional prospects where you are, then you're looking to do the next thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I suppose it's like, you know, you're only as good as your next story, really. Yep. Um, and I used to, I love getting the stories. I don't know if I necessarily enjoyed writing them up because the the, the sort of joy and the hard work and the satisfaction of getting all the information together mm-hmm you can't really put that in the written... You just can't. You know, on a flat bit of paper, you read the story, you think, "All right, and you think, do you know how much blood, sweat and tears and phone calls and hours that I spent on that? So I think that kind of gets lost a wee bit when you get to the writing. So I always enjoy getting the stories, talking to new people... Finding out things, mm-hmm. um, and then if you get, I suppose if you get to know an area quite well, and you become maybe comfortable in it, yeah, maybe not complacent, but definitely comfortable in it. It's like, right, okay, I need to prove that I can still do this somewhere else, mm-hmm. um, and meet new people, and they'll have different priorities or different mm-hmm. types of story that you, you want to cover. And mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, more, normally, I, I think the longest I was, I was somewhere was editor of the Irvin. Times and that was about eight or nine years. Right, that's a lot, and that's quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was the longest.
0: Is it a hard transition from reporter to editor? Uh, Because you're now, Mm. I I mean, without really knowing what the dynamic is, you're Uh, the boss. You've gone from being the from to, to being the boss. Yeah, maybe alongside people who you previously just. Yeah. Being on a level with, and then you're suddenly. Yeah, I a bit mean, Like the guy who's a player and then he becomes the a manager. manager.
1: Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, there is a wee bit of that. Um, interesting, when I became an editor, I never ever wanted to be. And if someone had, you know, gone back to when I was eight and I wanted to be a reporter, all I ever wanted to be was a reporter. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, looking at editors and thinking, oh, I don't want to do that. Why would I want to read other people's stories? Why mm. am I not. I, I want to go out there and get the stories. So I remember the first couple of months of becoming a newspaper. I became an editor when I was 23, right. 24, something like that.
0: That seems um, young to Is that young? It seems yeah,
1: young to me. I think, it, I think it, yeah, it probably was. It's mm-hmm. probably just me talking my way into things. Um, but I remember um, the first couple of months finding that quite difficult mm-hmm. because people were coming in with their stories or they had ideas or I'd get a story and I was giving it to someone else to follow it through. And it's about, you know, Trusting them to do it, mm-hmm. or um, and when they get really excited about getting something really good, and I wasn't getting that excitement, then what happens eventually um, is that you actually get pleasure and satisfaction through your team. Yeah, so you. you it becomes about... Because you've enabled new, all this to happen. Because, yeah, because, you know, if you've interviewed them and you've employed them, then mm-hmm. they're your guys. Yeah. You know, and you're the one that's, um, you know, often giving them their first job, which yeah. is a big deal. Um, and you want... And, and your paper um, and everything in it, it you know, the buck stops with you. Mm-hmm. Literally, the buck stops with you. So everything in it becomes a reflection of you as well. So that kind of... Um, Ownership mm-hmm. comes back just in a different way.
0: Yeah, because you. So if you you've not necessarily written the words, but no, you've endorsed, but you're yeah, endorsed But you're, you're
1: endorsing it. You've read them. You've maybe rewritten them. You've tidied them up. Mm-hmm. You've assigned the job. Yeah. You've designed the pages. Um. You've met the deadline. Yeah. So there's all of those things that um make it um very rewarding. But mm-hmm. I remember the first couple of months feeling a wee bit narked that. Everybody else was going out on things and I'm stuck behind my desk.
0: Well, that was my next question. You're in the office all the time. Did you miss not being out there and meeting people and stuff? You're just...
1: Uh Uh-huh. I did do that. I mean, obviously, as an editor, you have to do the whole sort of shaking hands and get out and talk to people Mm. and schmooze and things. So there were certain things you'd go to and be invited to and you need to do that because you're representing, you know, the paper and, you know, the readership and all the rest of it. But, um... you know when a big story broke, you know something major happened, um, and you're sending your guys out on it, and you've got to sit and wait. Um, yeah, that can be a wee bit. Yeah. Uh, that. Yeah. Because you, you're
0: just kicking your heels, going, "I hope well, yeah, they get this you, right." You,
1: well, you're hoping they get it, and they sort of ask the right questions, and mm. and there's a lot of trust in it. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of trust in your reporters, which is why you need to be, I think, smart at who you who mm. who you interview when you interview people, and who you give a job to. Mm-hmm. Because um, it is important that they're um, they're up, up to doing it, and you trust them to ask the right questions and come back with the information that you yeah. need to get a better story than any other paper does.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, obviously, now you're edu- your your full time job is education. What kind of when did you start taking your first steps into education? It
1: kind of happened. The editor I was talking about, Donald Fullerton, actually my my first editor. Um, he was doing something at well Hamilton campus but mm-hmm. it was Bell College at the yep. time he couldn't do it um, and he asked me would I step in and do it and it was to do an NCTJ thing to help with some exam stuff so um, I was in doing a bit of that and when I was in doing that the person who was running the journalism department at that time said would I like to come in and do some teaching they'd summon on away or whatever anyway they'd they they were a a, a body short or something could I come in and do some teaching and I was still editor at the time Mm -hmm. and I thought "Mm, should I do this Um, can I do it and I thought well I'll go in and try it and I quite enjoyed it Mm -hmm. Um, because it's almost like it is in some respects um, for me anyway it's an extension of being the editor so you are responsible for shaping and advising and nurturing and assigning information and things and you've got to be organised and you need to be able to multitask to the degree. You need to remember what everyone is doing Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and when they're doing it as much as what you're doing yourself. Um, And in education, so that's kind of how, so I did bits and pieces um, for a number of years um, and then I think becoming a mum. Mm-hmm. Was the sort of because up until then the newspapers had been my babies, yeah, and then we have a real one, yeah. It's uh, the time factor is how much I mean, I would you know, folks that I worked with, I mean, I would work crazy hours, yeah. Um, and I, d- and I remember thinking they pay me for doing this, mm-hmm. um, so I would work daft, crazy hours, um, all the time, not a good thing if you're a mum, no, um, so that was. Kind of the the major factor for changing mm-hmm. changing careers in that respect.
0: You you talked earlier on about you know sort of being a voice for the people who don't have a voice. Does that influence the way you teach? And because maybe people you know you have to teach sports journalism and maybe uh-huh. people because they're passionate about a sport and mm-hmm. they were really interested in you know talking tactics or or whatever. So they've maybe got a slightly different reasons for maybe getting coming along does that influence how you speak to them and teach them or um, you just tell them what's important to you and... I,
1: it's a combination of both i mean in terms of the teaching sometimes um, when i started out in teaching and you were asking you know even interviewing student applicants to come on and you say you know why do you want to be a journalist mm. or whatever and they don't really know yeah and I, and I remember initially thinking, why don't you know why you're know you here? Yeah. Because I wanted to do it since I was eight years old and yeah. why wouldn't you not yeah. have that very clear plan? Um, the older I've got, I've realised that not everyone has that plan and, and probably I was a bit weird in being like that. Um, so sometimes they're not that sure um, and it's about guiding them and supporting them through it, and letting them find their own voice and what matters to them and, and, and the things that interest them. And I'd like to think I'm quite good at um, reading people in terms of their strengths and where they need to maybe improve on, um, but also enhancing their strengths. So mm-hmm. if they're very good at interviewing or they're a very good writer, then to try and nurture that and support it in any way that you can. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a, a former colleague here who's now retired... Uh, used to say that I just wanted everybody to be like me in journalism, and that I teach everyone just to be like me. Now, there is a bit of a well, if everybody in journalism thought like me, the world would be a better place. <laughs> However, um, that's not necessarily the case. I just want them to know um, the pitfalls. Mm-hmm. I want to know, I want them to understand the problems and the issues, but I also want them to understand that this is a privilege. Mm-hmm. Being a journalist is a privilege. You get to ask questions that they the ordinary people, the public, don't get to ask. You get to be in places that the public don't necessarily get to. It is a real privilege, and sometimes you only get one chance at it. Mm-hmm. So you've got to nail it, yeah. um, and you need to be, and you need to be resilient, and you need to be a wee bit tough. So I'd like to think I'm firm but fair yeah. um, on everyone um, in terms of that. So I will give praise where praise is due, mm-hmm. um, and if things haven't gone as well you know, we'll sit and we'll talk it through and hopefully what they don't do, I I, I say to students all the time and I used to say to my reporters, I don't mind you making mistakes. We'll learn from our mistakes. We don't learn from the things we do well. We only learn from the things that we don't do well and the things we need to improve on. Mm -hmm. But if you keep making the same mistake over and over and over again, then we're going to have a wee sit down and have a wee
0: chat. Yeah. Because there must be an element of, obviously this is education, but it's a harsh world out there Mm -hmm. and if they sort of you must have to maybe toughen them up a bit before they actually graduate and stuff so that they so that they're able to cope with the the outside world
1: it's funny because I remember years ago um, teaching in Hamilton and there was some student I can't remember it must have been something maybe about death knocks or going out Um, you know, in a really tough call Mm -hmm. and they were saying, oh I don't want to do that I'm not going to do that And you know, why would I want to do that and I'd say, you know what, never mind taking a class on how to write, we need to have some sort of boot camps or something to Mm -hmm. toughen you up and it is the other thing I always say to them, try and remember that um, you are performing a role, you're doing a job, Mm -hmm. so you know, the Elizabeth McLaughlin who's a reporter, isn't necessarily the Elizabeth McLaughlin who's a mum or a wife or a friend, mm-hmm. although there might be people who say that that doesn't change. Yeah. But the point is, you know, me being, you know, quite dogmatic we a politician or um relentlessly aiming to get information out of someone, that doesn't mean I do that in you know yeah. my home life. Although yeah. as I said, there'll probably be a whole host of people saying yes, that's yes. exactly what you <laughs> do. But at the same time, if they can even just adopt mm. the persona that they need and have in their head, I'm entitled to ask this, I am entitled to be here and I am doing something that's really impo- important for people to know. And mm. if you have that belief and you even just adopt that almost like an acting role, yeah. then hopefully that just makes you stand that wee bit taller. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe not being a particularly tall person, it's those couple of inches it make a big make difference. A big difference.
0: When, when think, obviously we've talked about, you've talked about how important uh, journalism is, and obviously we've the way the world is at the minute, and we see the president of the United States casting m- who has massive been massive, a
1: fabulous, fabulous advocate for journalism. Yeah, yeah. Which he probably, obviously, didn't set out no. to do um, at all. I, I do think the American uh, press should be saluted. Yeah. For how they've taken on, um, I think um, you know, fake news has made... The use of the term fake news has made the public probably appreciate Mm -hmm. the value of good journalism, Mm -hmm. of real news. Yeah. You know, if if that's such a thing. Yeah, yeah. But, and the fact that it is important to have people who are Mm -hmm. um, out there checking facts and authenticating information um, and verifying things. Yeah. Um, You know, because I think before that, it was something that kind of was taken for granted, but the public mm-hmm. also liked to have a go at. Yeah. And then I think the likes of um, what's happened in America mm-hmm. has made the the media, the print media in particular, yeah. kind of flex its muscles a mm-hmm. wee bit more and, and say, you know, we are going to investigate more. We're going to dig out all yeah. this information. Um, so I think, I don't think, ah, well, I will I don't doubt for a minute that Donald Trump did not set out to... Um, resuscitate or resurrect or give new new voice or new life to the American press and media but he has done a remarkable uh-huh. job of doing that
0: mm-hmm. But so on the sort of other side of the coin from the sort of journalists who are doing some good stuff and when things like the phone hacking scandal happens maybe 2011 and we have mm-hmm. a major Sunday newspaper close like mm-hmm. at three days notice basically did did that affect your job or did it make make you not doubt yourself, but like doubt the industry? And did when you were obviously your election at that time? Do you, yeah. Do, do you how you know how do you address that with the students? I, I, I
1: mean, I think you address it. I mean, it's funny because people talk about you know what the 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 news of the world what journalists did and all the rest of it, and we need tougher laws and all the rest of it. They broke the law. Mm. You know there were laws. Yeah, yeah. They broke them by doing mm-hmm. it. Um, I mean, I think in all. Professions. There will be people who will um, toe the ethical, moral line and there will be others who will turn a blind eye to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get good teachers and bad teachers, you get good lawyers and bad lawyers and all the rest of it. So I think in terms of the profession as a whole, um, there were probably some people who were appalled by it, probably a lot more in the media who were thinking, well tell us something we didn't know that was going on mm-hmm. um and i think what it would, again it, it knocked journalism in terms of people thought that journalists you know hidden wardrobes and mm-hmm. recorded everything and you know rummaged through people's bins and all the rest of it and that's not to say that sort of thing didn't happen yeah but i think when the news of the world scandal broke as such um it, was, it reinforced everybody's stereotypical prejudices about what journalism was. And it yeah. was like, right, we all knew that. Um, I think what it then did was have people talk about how important it was to be, you know, stay within the law um, and that there are codes and that we have um, conventions um, that, that we adhere to. Um, but yes, it can be challenging. I mean, it was in terms of education, it was it was fascinating and interesting, um, and good material to talk to students about because it, it opens up that whole question about you know so how far would you go
2: mm-hmm.
1: to get a story? How far would you go to expose a wrong? Would you do a wrong to mm-hmm. expose a wrong and so forth? So these are all big questions um, that need to be wrestled with, um, and when you have a live case like the News of the World and so forth. And, I mean, the paper closing, no, I don't think any journalist wants to see a newspaper close. Um, it's a terrible thing t- for to happen. And also because um, it suggests that every single journalist at the News of the World was acting yeah, well, the that, same that's way. The thing and the reality took was... a lot of people who yeah,
0: just had mortgages to pay and who hadn't done exa- anything wrong. Exactly,
1: and other than they were, you know, they were tarred by that brush. Yeah. You know, so there are things like that, um, mm. but... Interestingly, you know, your last question about Trump, uh, Donald Trump and the impact on the media—I um, think—and I, I don't know, but I would think that the, maybe the perception has slightly changed. Mm-hmm. But it's maybe important to have people who do investigations. I'm not saying break the law to do them, mm-hmm. but it's important to have people who will hold people to account.
0: Mm-hmm. And for the for the future, you know, for the guys you're you're um, you're educating today. Uh, on the one hand, there's probably never been so many opportunities to get their work out there. But in terms of making money, is like is it? It's a sort of, it's maybe more. You know, it's paradoxically less easy. If you know what I'm saying. I mean, what what kind of advice do you give to people who are, you know, they're graduating now? Uh,
1: you know, it's funny because you know. I, I I get asked this by applicants when they come to for an interview. Or their parents or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, other jobs out there. And I genuinely believe it hand in heart. Good journalists, mm-hmm. if you're good at it, you'll make a career out of it, yep. you'll make money out of it. I, I genuinely believe that will be the case. I do think, yes, there are plenty of opportunities now for people to share their podcasts, their, mm-hmm. you know, their websites, their content yep. and all the rest of it. Whether they can monetize that or not. But that's a big question. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look at the, the big media moguls who are struggling to make money out of online, it, my feeling is if they're struggling to make money out of online, yeah. then everybody's going to struggle. Um, but I do think sometimes because having so much opportunity means there's so much noise out there. Yeah. Um, and therefore, how do you select the noise to listen to? And how do you know that that noise is authentic and true? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there are challenges around that, but I do think it's an exciting time in some respects. Would I want to be? There are times when I think, yeah, I'd quite like to be doing it just now, um, but only with the caveat that I would take all the knowledge Mm -hmm. that I've got over the last thirty odd years with me. Mm -hmm. So I'd be starting out with, you know, Elizabeth McLaughlin's brain for the last forty odd years or something, Mm -hmm. but. So from that point of view, I think it would be quite exciting. It's challenging. I think you've got to be persistent and I think you need to be resilient. But then I think you've always had to do that anyway. Um, But there's different opportunities now. You know, in the past it was, you know, you kind of went into your local paper, you went to the nationals, Mm -hmm. and blah, 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 blah. Um, You know, there's a bigger crossover between broadcast and print now. Um, uh, But there are opportunities um, in different ways. So you can set yourself up as a media organisation. You know, having been the programme leader for sports journalism, so many opportunities now in sports media, not just in football, but in other sports, because they've seen the opportunity that technology gives them to control their message Mm -hmm. so that they can, you know, why go to the Daily Record for a press conference, you know, and Mm -hmm. find out what, um, you know, Brendan Rodgers or whoever has said... Um, when you can have a camera and you can put it up in the Celtic website and they can hear it from the man himself yeah. so there are different opportunities um, in terms of it but I, I would say it's probably exciting but very challenging times mm-hmm. but there you know there are still really good uh, journalism. Sports journalism graduates getting really good jobs, so yeah. they are out there. And um, those that make it probably have that wee bit of determination, yeah, and that wee bit more drive. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I do think they need to be more entrepreneurial now. And mm-hmm. um, going back to your question about yeah. money, because at the end of the day, yes, you know, I've said earlier on that I can't believe people pay me for this, but at the same time, I needed to get paid because yeah. I would mortgage and a car and yep. children and holidays yep. so when this when the, the students come up to me and they've got great ideas i'll say right fantastic how are you make money out of this mm-hmm. and their wee faces kind of fall and i'll say yeah but you need to make money out of it yep. so let's think about the business side of it the business yep. models of it as well
0: which is key obviously yeah and just finally really to finish off for yourself you're obviously as i say we senior lecturer uws you're on the board of the the UWS Sirens netball team you've obviously been heavily involved in things like St Mirren TV project which uh, which we've got here at UWS but do you think you know do you have are you the kind of person that has five ten year plans and that sort of thing do you I, well,
1: if that's if that's the case, I'm almost ten years at UWS. So right. Maybe, maybe, and I've just said that I was nine years or thereabouts. So maybe it's about time that I was. I don't know. Maybe maybe the time is right to do something different. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I it's interesting. Um, I don't know if um. I al- I always have a plan, mm-hmm. um, and I do have plans um, in terms of that. They kind of changed slightly, I think, since um, having children. Yeah. Um, you know their plans, their future. Yeah. Seems uh, seems quite rightly Because you take more you important. take a step back, seat a you wee take, bit you take a in, wee yeah. step back. So it's not necessarily about where's Elizabeth McLaughlin want to go in the next yeah. ten years. It's probably right. Where's Elizabeth McLaughlin's children going to be in the next ten years, yeah. and what can Elizabeth fit in around all of that? Yeah. Um, but interestingly you know i hadn't thought about it but i was the longest i've ever been somewhere is 9 years and i'm heading to that 9 into 10 here mm-hmm. so maybe it's time for a rethink not necessarily about leaving uws but mm. about where i sit in uws yeah. what i want to do in uws um i get bored easy mm-hmm. jamie so i need to do something that, that keeps me occupied keeps yep. me out of trouble keeps me out of mischief. so i'm not quite sure but i don't think i'll ever um move away from journalism it's interesting with king who was a sports editor at the sun for a long long time and Logan Taylor, who comes in as an associate lecturer here, mm. and he was one of my editors a long, long time ago. And you hear these guys talking, and we bring in others as well, but we bring in, uh, you hear these two guys talking in particular, and they still love journalism. Yeah. They still love everything about it, and so do I. So I can't imagine a time mm. when I'm not involved in journalism yeah. in some capacity, and... Um, I just can't imagine mm-hmm. not doing it. It's sort of in the DNA yeah. somehow.
0: And because in that drive that you spoke about with Ian, you Logan and yourself, yeah. it's probably a big part of the fact that they're still involved and you've all done really well.
1: It, well, exactly. I mean, I think um, that kind of love of it, I, I don't think you can do something as, for that long without actually loving it. Yeah. Um, and I feel very sort of, you know, blessed in so many ways. Um, you know, I've interviewed a lot of politicians. I've, you know, been in so many royal visits. I think I've met them all. Um, And, you know, I've been in a cage with tigers. Logan Taylor will hate me for saying that out loud because the insurance was a nightmare. But, so, you know, I've got to do some fantastic stuff and you get to ask questions that, you know, nobody else gets to ask and talk to these people Um. And hold them to account. It sounds as if that's all I do is hold people to account. Maybe that is what I do. Um, but I think you need journalists like that. But it is, it's about, um, it's, it, it's it's the best job in the world. I don't care what MD says. It is the best job in the world. Um, and I can't imagine it not being part of my future, whatever that may be.
0: Elizabeth McLaughlin, thank you very much for taking the time to tell us how you ended up here,
1: Jamie? Here, it's been a pleasure, and you know you've made me think about things that I haven't thought about for a long time.
0: Good. Well, I hope that's a positive.
1: It was a very positive <laughs> thing. <laughs> Fantastic.
0: Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this time. Thanks very much for downloading or streaming this first ever edition of How Did You End Up Here. You can follow me on Twitter. It's simple enough. I'm at Jamie Here. And give me your thoughts if you have any. Otherwise, I'll be back soon with the second edition. Until then, thanks very much for listening.